Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, small town fam. Welcome to The Briefing Room. Every day, in police stations across the world, law enforcement officers begin their shift with briefing. Briefings are essential to communication and allow officers and command staff to discuss calls for service, crime trends, case law, wanted subjects, training opportunities, and policy changes. Briefing rooms provide a setting where the team can speak with each other candidly and openly. We wanted to create a similar setting for our listeners. The Briefing Room series will include intimate, informal conversations about trending issues, viral videos, guidance and training from detectives, as well as commentary on other topics impacting law enforcement and the true crime community. So welcome to The Briefing Room. So today on The Briefing Room, we are continuing our discussion about case law and how it shapes the way police officers are expected to do their job. I have with me Detective Dan. Hello, team. Hello, you. And I have Detective Dave. I'm present as well. You are present. It's so good to have you both. Okay, fellows, tell us about this famous case that further shapes the way police officers are supposed to do the job. Some of the standards that you're held to, these boxes that you're expected to tick. Okay. So Dave and I thought it would be a good idea to talk about Miranda versus Arizona. And that is the case where we get the Miranda warning from. And we're also going to talk about a case that kind of set the groundwork for Miranda. And this case is Escobedo versus Illinois. And this case happened in 1960. And I'll just give you a brief rundown. So this guy, Danny Escobedo, his brother-in-law, a guy named Manuel, gets shot and killed on January 19th, 1960. Manny gets shot. And Escobedo gets arrested initially and refuses to make a statement to the police. And he gets released. About 10 days later, the police have another man in custody, a guy named Benedict, uh, that's his first name. And while Benedict is in custody, he tells the police that Danny Escobedo is actually the shooter in this case, this murder of Manuel. And so the police go out 
on January 30th and arrest Danny Escobedo again. And this is in Illinois? This is in Illinois. And while transporting Danny Escobedo to the station, the police basically say, hey, Benedict dimed you out. It would be in your best interest to tell us everything that happened and be honest with us. And Escobedo says, uh, yeah, I'm not going to talk to you guys until I have an attorney. And the police are like, oh, oh, okay. And the police reasoning here for not providing him attorney is that he hadn't been arrested yet, so he didn't have the right to counsel. Is that true? Well, that's what they said back in the day. Obviously, there's case law regarding this, so that gets addressed at a later time. So Escobedo's attorney actually shows up to the police department and the police don't allow the attorney to talk to his client, Danny Escobedo. So at the same time the police are bringing Escobedo to the police department, the attorney shows up and the police say, no, you can't come into the interview room. Correct. And this is stuff that I saw your reaction on the Zoom, that your eyes opened very wide and you're shocked. We have to remember that the way they operated back then is not how we operate now. So the police uh, repeatedly refuse the attorney to have contact with his client, Escobedo. The police and the prosecutor proceed to interview Escobedo for 14 and a half hours. Escobedo repeatedly asks to speak to his attorney. They refuse. And during this 14 and a half hour interrogation, Escobedo begins to make a couple statements indicating his knowledge of the crime. And they go to trial and Escobedo gets convicted of murder. Obviously, they appealed this decision and basically said he had the right to counsel and it was refused and he should get another trial. And Illinois Supreme Court agreed. Illinois Supreme Court reverses the conviction. The state petitioned for another rehearing and the court then affirmed the conviction. So overturned their earlier decision that the confession should be inadmissible, they reverse and say, okay, the conviction's good. He should be convicted of murder. Okay, can you put that in layman's terms? So originally Escobedo gets convicted of murder. The court says, yeah, the confession is good. He appeals to the Illinois Supreme Court, which initially... The Illinois Supreme Court says, no, the confession is inadmissible, and they reverse the conviction. So Escobedo is not convicted at this point. The state of Illinois petitions for a rehearing with the Illinois Supreme Court, and they come out victorious. So they reaffirm the conviction. So now Escobedo is convicted again. And thereby saying that his confession was admissible. Yes. I don't know why they went back and forth. Escobedo then appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court and in a 5-4 decision, which surprises me, uh, again, we're talking about 14 hours he was denied counsel, Escobedo. In a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court overturns the conviction. And says he is free again. He is free. You cannot use that confession. It's inadmissible. So let's just fast forward a few years. Following the Supreme Court's decision, which happened in 1964, Escobedo ends up receiving 12 felony convictions, including federal charges of selling. He's also convicted of some child sex abuse crimes. And while Escobedo's free on bond 
with those federal charges. Escobedo pleads guilty to attempted murder and gets sentenced to 11 years in a separate case. So that's just a little nugget. So that takes us to March of 1963, and a guy named Ernesto Miranda was arrested by the Phoenix Police Department. Phoenix PD had circumstantial evidence on Miranda regarding the kidnapping and rape of an 18-year-old girl. And about two hours of interrogation by the police produces a written confession, a signed confession from Miranda stating, quote, I do hereby swear that I make this statement voluntarily and of my own free will with no threats, coercion, or promises of immunity and with full knowledge of my legal rights, understanding any statement I make may be used against me, end quote. The issue is that Mr. Miranda was never advised that he had any rights, that he had the right to counsel, that he had the right to remain silent and not make a statement at all. So that's the crux of this case. The questions here are whether antecedently to the giving of his confession, the police were constitutionally obliged to give warning of a right to remain silent and a right to consult counsel. Does that mean that those basic rights had already been established based on the Escobedo case? They had. There was a basic understanding that people have a right to counsel. Now, in this case, Miranda, to my knowledge, never said, I want to speak to a lawyer. But he also wasn't advised that he had the right to remain silent, which is part of the Miranda reading of rights. Correct. And that he had the right to counsel also, which was established in the Escobedo case that he has a right to counsel, but Miranda was unaware of those things. So what the court did, initially, they go to trial. Miranda goes to trial and he gets convicted. He gets sentenced to 20 to 30 years on each charge with the sentences running concurrently, which means if you get two 20-year sentences consecutively, you're going to serve 40. Concurrently is you're serving both of those sentences at the same time. Miranda appeals to the Arizona Supreme Court claiming that his confession is not fully voluntary and should not have been admitted into the court proceedings. The Arizona Supreme Court affirmed the trial's court decision to admit the confession. So they don't agree with Miranda's appeal. Correct. And basically they say, well, you didn't specifically request an attorney. So sorry, that's on you. But again, he was not aware of his rights. So we look at this in a different lens now, decades later, right? Obviously. So Miranda then appeals that decision up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in 1966, the Supreme Court issued a 5-4 decision in Miranda's favor that overturned his conviction and remanded his case back to Arizona for a retrial. This had kind of a ripple effect even through the Supreme Court. I mean, that's a close decision, five to four, right? And the majority in this case of the court ruled that because of the coercive nature of the custodial interrogation by police and the justice, Earl Warren, cited that there are police training manuals that had not been provided during the court proceedings, that no confession could be admissible under the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination clause 
and the Sixth Amendment right to an attorney clause unless a suspect has been made aware of his rights and then the suspect waived those rights. We are compelled as a matter of federal constitutional law to hold on the basis of the Escobedo case that these warnings must be given. These rights must be waived. Otherwise, a statement, no matter how free and voluntary it may otherwise be, may not be received in evidence. Okay, so in layperson's terms, unless you specifically say to the person you have the right to remain silent and the right to an attorney, and they say, I understand that, and I waive my right to both of those things, whatever comes out of their mouth is inadmissible in court. Yeah, it's fruit of the poisonous tree. So just going back to the court's decision, so it was 5-4, right? The four justices who dissented in this case that said, no, I think the confession's good. They believe that once this warning went out there that nobody would ever talk to the police. So that's where their minds went. And they didn't think that that was in the best interests of the public. They're thinking in a more broad sense that nobody's ever going to confess now and that we're going to have problems. They had similar concerns at the Escobedo trial. Should be very clear that we're not talking merely about an opportunity to consult counsel. It is not the absence of consultation with counsel that is important. It is the absence of counsel that is important. That a man under indictment who clearly has the right to counsel, who was questioned at all by the police, no matter how many times he had consulted with counsel since his indictment, if the confession came in the absence of counsel, the confession would be incompetent which means essentially there will be no more confessions. I will say this, law enforcement was forced to change their tactics and I don't think Miranda or Escobedo has had really any impact on the amount of confessions we get. So uh, just a little side note to this case, Miranda gets retried in 1967. The actual man named Miranda, not the case. Yes, the actual dude. So Miranda goes back to trial in 1967 on the original kidnapping and rape case. After it had been thrown out, they do a retrial. This time the prosecution presents other evidence and brings other witnesses forward. Miranda gets convicted again, absent the the confession. Uh, He gets convicted in 67, sentenced to 20 to 30 years. So 20 to 30 years. That's his sentence. The Supreme Court of Arizona reviewed that case and affirmed the conviction the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, if you guys did everything you said you were going to do, then we're good. We're not going to review that case again. The conviction stands. Yeah. Miranda gets paroled in 1972. So he gets sentenced to 20 to 30 years and he serves just under five years in prison for the kidnapping and rape of an 18-year-old girl. He ends up going back to his old neighborhood And now all these police officers have Miranda cards, right? With the Miranda warning on them that you read to people when you take them into custody. And cops are going around Miranda having them autograph their Miranda cards. Stop it. It's unbelievable. I wouldn't want to talk to the guy like he's a rapist and he's a kidnapper. I'm not going to have him autograph my Miranda card. Anyway, that happens for a few years. So in kind of an ironic twist of fate, In 1976, Miranda goes to a bar one night, gets in a verbal argument with a guy that turns physical and he gets stabbed to death. And the suspect in that case gets arrested, but due to a lack of evidence against him, he gets released and he's never tried for it. 
That is ironic. Hey, Small Town Fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are and what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then, from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's gonna be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. 
That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. So anyway, Dave has talked about when and how we use Miranda. The gist is, this is why we have Miranda warning, is that the court said we have to give that up front to anybody we're accusing of a crime and who is at risk of potentially providing incriminating information about themselves. We have to front load that interview with, hey, I want to make sure you're aware that you don't have to speak to me, basically. And this is how the police have had to operate ever since. The court outlines this and says, anytime a person is in custody, prior to their interrogation, they must be clearly informed that they have the right to remain silent, that anything they say will be used against them in a court. They must be clearly informed that they have the right to an attorney and have the attorney with them while they're being questioned. And that if you cannot afford an attorney, an attorney will be provided to you by the state at no cost. So those are your rights. Now, the other side of that is if a suspect actually chooses to exercise those rights, the right to remain silent, the right to an attorney, etc., the interrogation must cease at that point until the attorney is present. And then obviously you must give the person time to confer with their attorney. So that all makes sense, right? That's kind of where we are today regarding interviews. And when we talk about Miranda, Mirandizing, did you give him Miranda? These are all the terms that we use in law enforcement. This is background for the discussion we're about to enter is when are situations that we are providing a suspect with the Miranda warning? Because if somebody is in your custody who you are just chatting with, there is a thing where you don't have to read the Miranda because you haven't actually accused them or suspected them of a crime. Well, that's what we're going to talk about is 
when do you provide Miranda and when do you not need to provide Miranda? And it's all about time, place, and circumstance and what a reasonable citizen or person would feel about whether or not they are being seized, like detained, stopped, etc. So this again is provided the boundaries or the railings for where police can go with interrogation and questioning. And so we talk about a situation where you say, hey, did you Mirandize? Like say a patrol is out with a suspect and a detective gets called in. One of the first things I'm going to ask is, has he been advised of Miranda? I want to know that up front because if he already has, I'm not required to do so. You don't have to re-advise him of that. Right. You know, if it was a day prior that they contacted him, I'm going to re-advise him. But if we're talking about a half an hour, I don't have to re-advise. Not every person that comes across a suspect has to advise him of his rights. If he's been advised, a reasonable person would say, oh, nothing's really changed about my circumstances. I knew that I have the right to remain silent and an attorney, etc. So there are conditions, there are cases where I'm not required to advise someone of Miranda. And this is kind of the discussion. I always love when people say, you never advise me of my rights. Well, I don't have to in certain situations. One of those being, if I'm not going to ask you any questions, I don't have to advise you of your rights. You can be under arrest and never get the Miranda warning. Really? Yeah, absolutely. You can put me under arrest, not ask me any questions. And in that case, you don't have to read me my Miranda rights. Exactly. Miranda applies when I am asking interrogatory questions that put you at risk of incriminating yourself. So it's kind of a misnomer. People like, oh, this arrest is going to get thrown out because they never advised me of Miranda. Well, I wasn't asking you any questions. I don't have to. Now, if the suspect starts talking to you about the case, then yes, you need to Mirandize them. So you need to interrupt them and say, before you go on, I need to advise you of your rights. Exactly. And then there are some situations where Miranda may or may not apply. I'm just thinking back on cases. So you've seen video of interrogation rooms or interview rooms at police departments, right? So I can have a conversation with a suspect in that room and not have Miranda. And there are some specific ways to do that. So one is leave the door open. Like physically? Yeah. Physically leave the door open. I would also sit on the far wall of the room so I am not between the suspect or the person I'm interviewing and the door. Talk about why those two things are important. Well, if I'm sitting between the door and the suspect, they're not going to feel like they're free to leave. If I'm between the door and the suspect, if I switch the seating in that room, it's easier for me to articulate that they were free to leave. I wasn't between them and the door. The door was open. I had told the suspect that they were free to leave. But the other side of that is if I'm going to start asking incriminating questions, I need to Mirandize this person. So if you're just having a general informational interview, say they're not a suspect at this point at all. I'm just talking to them, trying to get some background. I think they're a witness. But all of a sudden they start making incriminating statements. Now I have to Mirandize them. And it wouldn't have to be incriminating themselves or could it be incriminating somebody else? It's self-incrimination. So the Fifth Amendment, right? Other situations where, you know, Dave's had this happen many, many times, and there's specific language that we have to touch on regarding an invocation. So if somebody says, I wonder if I should speak to an attorney, 
Do you think that that is a clear invocation or a request to speak to an attorney? I don't think it's a clear invocation. I don't think it's even a request to speak to an attorney. I think it's wondering out loud. And the courts agree with you. Uh, Dave, why don't you talk about some different situations where you've had this happen? Right. Our first episode ever, Don't Go, uh, suspect in that case was speaking to Detective Dawn, and he made some sort of comment about, well, I don't have an attorney. And at trial, that became an issue uh, at a suppression hearing, basically saying, well, he said the attorney word, and you guys continued to question him. And the argument that Prosecutor Eric made was, there are specific boxes suspects have to check for it to be an invocation of their rights. And in this case, he made a statement. It's not unequivocal where you say, oh, he clearly just invoked his right to remain silent or he clearly requested an attorney. So you have these situations where, again, they're nuanced. And those cases that happen in an interview room aren't going to be addressed for months and months down the road until they reach the courtroom. So you think about the impact something very simple like a contact out on the street between a patrol officer and a suspect that can have a huge impact on the case when it finally makes it to trial so very complex it's easier just to get miranda out of the way when you start talking to somebody but for me there were times where i was worried that once i bring up the subject matter that i want to ask you questions about especially in my caseload of child abuse and sexual assault, that I don't want to give you Miranda if I don't have to. So there are times where I would interview somebody on their own turf, go to their house, ask them, hey, I'm Detective Dave from X police department. I'd like to speak to you. Are you available right now? I'm on their turf. I can let them know I've gotten a confession without Miranda before by just saying you're not under arrest and regardless of what we talk about during this conversation, you will not be under arrest at the end of our conversation. No reasonable person can say, I still thought I was going to be under arrest. Well, what did the detectives say to you? He told me that I wasn't under arrest and that under no circumstances would I be under arrest at the end of the conversation, regardless of what we talked about. So I'm letting that person know you're not under arrest. You're not in custody. You're on your own turf. You are free to leave at any time. I used to put in my narratives, I usually had a whole paragraph about kind of what the interaction was like. The tone, is it conversational and polite or is it confrontational? If I'm going to get confrontational with somebody, I'm going to provide them with their Miranda warning. And these are the part of your reports that you had to submit to prosecutors? Yeah. So you're setting the scene is what you're saying. Exactly. Because after having gone through suppression hearings, you start to see where the arguments are made by defense attorneys. And a defense attorney says something like, well, based on where you were situated in the room, did my client have free access to the door to be able to leave? So that's where Dan's talking about. I left the door open. I put them closest to the door. So they had unobstructed path to an exit to be able to leave that room. Situations where I would interview somebody at their house, did they invite me in or did I just step in without being invited? 
big difference. Did I limit their movements by patting them down and requesting that they only stay in the room where we were speaking? I had a case where suspect slapped a two-year-old girl and left a huge handprint on the side of her face. I went to his house to interview him. He invited me into his apartment. He had free reign of his apartment, even though that was a strategic thing for me. I was worried, like, he kept walking into this back room, still talking to me. I can hear him, but he's in the back room. Now, that's a huge risk to me if he's grabbing a gun from under his pillowcase. But it's a tactical and strategic decision for me. I did not want to Mirandize this person. He invited me into the house. I didn't limit his movements. I never patted him down. Nobody can say I, representative of the government, was overstepping my bounds. This man invited me into his house, subsequently confessed, never gave him Miranda, never became an issue at trial either, because everyone's like, oh, should we argue this? Detective Dave wrote a whole paragraph about what was going on to set the scene. So later on, the attorneys know suspect's not being bullied by Detective Dave. It's actually quite the opposite. He put himself at quite a disadvantage by going to the suspect's house, letting suspect roam the house freely. I wasn't being overbearing. I was just there to talk to him. So you have situations where you have to Mirandize. There's been other situations where I've been in an interview and the tone turns at some point and becomes confrontational or I start calling somebody out about the lies that they've told me without ever having given them Miranda. I start confronting them on lies and facts and circumstances. And then I recognize, Hey, this conversation's turned the corner. I now need to provide you with your Miranda rights. So it's fluid. Interesting. And would that have the effect of where they would clam up or obviously it's case by case, but did you have situations where they were like, fuck you, I want a lawyer and you've changed the tone of it? Absolutely. There are times where once you get Miranda, somebody just says, nope, I'm not talking to you because they recognize the path of that conversation is not good for them. And now he just gave me Miranda and that's an oh shit moment for people. So you have to massage those situations. But you're allowed to use everything that came prior to that Miranda warning, are you? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I would talk to other police officers or other police officers would watch my demeanor in an interview, I learned that from the veterans, the dons of the world, Sergeant Dave, Detective Jeff, one of the most skilled interviewers I've ever watched. Very, very good. Knows how to read the room, knows how to command an interview and how to direct where the conversation goes. Those are the guys that I learned from. And then you learn more during a suppression hearing than anything because you see where defense attorneys go with, well, the detective did this and the government did this, me being the government. So really valuable lessons are learned by officers in suppression hearings. And it always frustrated me when if a confession or a piece of evidence was thrown out as a result of a suppression hearing, officers would go, oh, that's bullshit. You know, I got screwed on this. It's like, well, you also lost your case. So maybe make an adjustment. Are you going to change the way you do things? And are you going to learn from this? Or are you going to be bitter and continue 
to operate the way you operated in this case, and it got shoved up your ass. Make an adjustment. Get better. The easiest barometer for Miranda is are handcuffs on the suspect? Because if they are, and you're going to be talking about the case, you need to Mirandize them. Right. The test is, would a reasonable person feel free to leave? That's the test. And it's always that reasonable word again. Would a reasonable person, given these circumstances, feel as though they were free to leave? If the answer is, most people would feel like they are not free to leave and I'm asking them questions, I have to give Miranda. Have to. That's why it's so important to front load it with, you're not under arrest. And regardless of what we speak about today, you're not going to be under arrest at the end of this conversation. I might come back tomorrow and put handcuffs on you, but after this conversation, when I get up and go, you'll still be free. Right. And people might think that's tricky. Have I violated your rights? I'm playing by the rules that are given to me. So, you know, I love when people go, well, the cops lied to him in the interview room. I can do that. I'm playing within the rules. I can lie to you. I can bluff. Suspects lie to us they all lie the time. To you guys all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> just say So that. a lot of people think that that's dirty cop work. The real world is not a vacuum. These are very fluid situations. There are times in an interview where you are like, I really want to hit him with this fact right now, but I'm going to ask him four more questions before I do it. It's all strategy and it's thinking on your feet and being able to move with the conversation or redirect the conversation down the path that you want it to go. But cops need to be in charge in that interview room. If that dynamic changes and you're on your heels, you're going to lose that negotiation. And Dan was in sales for a long time, Dan recognizes that too. If you want to win, which for us, the win is get the confession, you've got to be in charge of that interview room. And it doesn't mean that you're pounding your hand on the table. It just means that you are intelligently and strategically pushing that interview down the path that you want it to go down. That said, you know, there are plenty of situations that that I've been in and that Dave has been in. You get a suspect in an interview room and they say you know what? I don't think I want to talk to you. I'm not going to talk to you. Or I think it's best if I had an attorney now. I would say that's an unequivocal invocation of their rights. Very clear. And it's okay to ask clarifying questions too. So you can say, okay, you just brought up your attorney. I just want to make sure that you're stating at this point that you do not want to continue the interview and that you would like your attorney present. Are we clear on that? And they would either say yes, or sometimes they would say, well, I mean, it depends on what you're going to ask me. Now that's different. And what we have to do in law enforcement is we have to ask clarifying questions to say, well, what questions am I asking that you feel like you need an attorney on? So I won't talk about those things and we'll go a different route with this interview because that's going to come up at a suppression hearing for sure. Absolutely will come up. So you have to ask clarifying questions. That way you can show the court and show the defense attorney and everybody else in that room. I just wanted to make sure that we were both on the same page, the suspect and I during this interview, that we were on the same page and that I recognized that there was the mention of an attorney and that this is important and I need to touch on this. So I've also had other situations where someone says, I'm not going to talk to you. No matter what you ask me, I'm not going to talk to you. 
that's a clear invocation. I say, okay, well, I've got to go do some paperwork at my desk. I'm going to lock you in this interview room. You're not free to leave. You're under arrest at this point. If you change your mind and you want to talk to me, just knock on the door. Or if you need something, knock on the door. Can I get you some water? When's the last time you used the restroom? So if they say, I want an attorney, and then they knock on the door and say, I changed my mind, I want to talk to you, is that a sticky wicket for you? It's not, but you have to ask clarifying questions. And you would probably advise them of Miranda again on a recorded line. And I would say, so earlier when we spoke, you invoked your right to an attorney. Now you seem to have changed your mind. We need to talk about this, about that fact that you have now changed your mind. And you ask very specific clarifying questions. Do you now wish to speak to me without an attorney present? Yes. Have you been threatened, coerced, intimidated, etc.? in any manner, which made you change your mind. You want to ask those questions too, because those are going to be brought up. They are always brought up. This thought that the police being heavy handed were in my client's face for six hours. I want to ask that up front. So it's already answered by the time it gets to a suppression hearing. We talk about the dance. I recall two great examples of this. One is the episode Wolf where when I started probing suspect for information about his computers and his electronic devices, he said, if we're going to go down that path, then I'm going to want an attorney. I had to ask clarifying questions to cover my ass, saying, I want to clarify that you will continue speaking with me and you don't feel like I'm violating your rights currently, but you're telling me that you don't want to speak about computers and child sex abuse material, that kind of stuff. Yes, you have that correct, detective. I don't want to talk about that, but I'll talk to you about all this other stuff. I had another situation where I remember being on patrol daytime and recall I was in was a fairly busy intersection and a vehicle was late going through the light going the opposite direction. And I remember seeing that going, should I go pull that guy over? But I would have had to cross three lanes of traffic in the middle of a green light. And I was like, it's just not worth it. That's potentially dangerous. So I'm going to let it go. But I remember the guy looked like, oh shit, I just ran a red light and there's a cop in the intersection. Awesome. So I got a great look at this guy. Two minutes later, I hear there was a vehicle just stolen and it was from a convenience store about three blocks away. So I'm like, oh, I just saw that truck. That's the one who ran the light going the opposite direction. Flip around, start driving back, you know, trying to backtrack where the suspect was going. And I see the guy, I see him running now on the sidewalk and he's running back towards where he came from, not in the car anymore. And I'm like, that's the same guy. That's him. I drive another block. I see the truck has been ditched. He probably saw me. In that intersection went, oh shit, I stole a car, the cops are right there. The victim in this case went into the convenience store and left the keys in the car, left the car running. I'm just going to be in there for a few minutes. This guy's like, oh sweet, car running, I need to get across town, hops in, drives away with it. It just so happens I was two blocks away in an intersection when he did that. Lucky, I got lucky. So I remember seeing this guy and I turned around he sees me turn around. He now runs back the other direction. So we're kind of doing this cat and mouse thing. <laughs> and I finally just 
pull up on him as he's crossing the street and I put him at gunpoint because I've got a felony here with a stolen vehicle and I held this guy at gunpoint in the middle of an intersection, traffic stopped all around me. I've got him proned out, you know, face down, arms out, legs out. And I start advising him of Miranda in the middle of the street at gunpoint because I wanted to ask him, whose car was that that you just took? So I said, weren't you just driving? Why are you running now? And this is after Miranda at gunpoint. Interesting situation. And he said, oh, uh, it's my friend's truck back there and it broke down. So I was running back to the store to get my friend. And I'm like, okay, that's bullshit. Uh, I said, who's your friend? Oh, his name is, I don't even remember. I said, did you steal that truck? And he said, I don't want to answer that. I want to remain silent. And I said, you don't want to answer that question and want to remain silent? Does that mean that you won't answer any more questions? He goes, no, if you ask me if I stole that truck, I don't want to answer that question, but I'll talk to you about anything else. So this guy's confession, well, wasn't a confession, his bullshit, was all blessed after a suppression hearing because I clarified with him, given at gunpoint, fairly coercive, I clarified with him that he just didn't want me to ask the question about if he stole the truck. All the other stuff was still in play. And I remember one of the attorneys on that case came to me and he said, that was some brilliant maneuvering there and recognizing that you could clarify and still kind of go down that path. So now that we have Miranda and you say you have the right to remain silent and anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law and the right to an attorney, why would anybody ever speak to you without an attorney? Well, part of it's, it's a sales job. After you Mirandize somebody, you obviously ask them, do you understand your rights? 99% of the time they say yes. Sometimes they have some other questions regarding the Miranda warning, which I'm happy to answer. But then you say, okay, so this is what we're dealing with today. Tell me what's going on, man. It's a conversation. It's not, why did you do this? You know, it's a conversation that you have with somebody. And again, your demeanor, the way you deliver questions, the certain questions that you ask, have you built rapport with somebody? Those are all factors that weigh into whether or not somebody's going to give you a statement. I have been convinced that I was going to arrest someone, whether or not they spoke to me at all. And they chose not to invoke. And by the end of that conversation had changed my mind. So it cuts both ways. There are times where giving a statement actually helps out, especially if it's like a self-defense type thing. I've been convinced where I'm like, oh, this guy's going to jail. And then you talk to him and he's like, oh, you find out that there's a lot of things that were left out by the complaining party. And now you're able to explain the circumstances and make that now a reasonable use of self-defense. So I've been convinced on rape cases by a suspect who I never thought was going to give me a statement. And then after a half an hour, you're like, okay, now I don't have probable cause anymore. It works both ways. So Miranda's not a black and white issue. There's a lot of gray area nuance, as with any of these other cases that we've talked about, that You've got some leeway and some agility inside those conversations. 
But once it's an unequivocal invocation, I want to remain silent. I don't want to speak to you. I want an attorney. We're done. And unless you reinitiate contact and a desire to speak to me, we're going to be done. I'm never going to get another shot at speaking to you about it. Unless the suspect reinitiates. You can't. Dave can't. Correct. The suspect has to reinitiate. It's so interesting and so nuanced and complex. Let's put a pin in our case law lesson right here. Small Town Superfam, thank you so much for joining us here on Patreon. You guys are the best. We'll have another briefing room in two weeks, so don't miss it. We'll see you next time. Well, that was delicious. Here's how it happened. Just like our main episodes, Small Town Dicks on Patreon is produced by Gary Scott and me, Yardley Smith, and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And Logan also composed our Patreon theme music. So that's fancy. And finally, our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. The team is forever grateful for your support. <laughs>